Welcome to Carrying on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine's news magazine, Caring for the Ages. Today, I wanna start off by mentioning some sad news that our longtime, uh, oh, I don't even know what to call him. He did so much for for our society and for uh, all of our uh, media offerings. Uh, John Gladstone died late last year uh, after a brief illness. And uh, our board of directors has decided to honor John with an annual Media Excellence Award, the first of which will be given out uh, at our annual meeting uh, between uh, March 10th and 13th in Baltimore. So I hope uh, many of our listeners will be there to see the the first ever John Gladstone Media Excellence Award be given. Um, On a positive note, uh, uh, under Dr. Wayne Saltzman, my predecessor, uh, and John Gladstone, uh, our offerings, our AMDA On The Go podcasts, uh, won basically like a Webby Award, a bronze award for nonprofit uh, healthcare communication. So I'm really excited about that. And kudos to Wayne and John for that. So with every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. And in this episode, highlighting the March 2022 issue of Caring, which is a special focus issue on the topic of trauma and trauma-informed care, uh, which is a highly relevant topic as the latest pandemic surge seems to be finally quieting down. Uh, Hopefully, uh, uh, no big new curveballs right around the corner. So Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Today, we're especially honored to also welcome one of our guest authors in March's issue of Caring and a great supporter of AMDA's work over the course of the pandemic. Uh, Francois Beausoleil is at the Empathic Leadership Institute, and he trains, coaches, and supports individuals and organizations throughout the world uh, in this work. He brings a strong business and coaching focus to this work. Uh, Francois is highly skilled at helping participants discover and transcend internal and external barriers so that they can live from a more fully empowered state. Uh, In his previous career, Francois was a musician with Cirque du Soleil, and he certainly brings creativity and music, uh, as well as his passion, into the rooms and hearts wherever he shares his work. And I've had the pleasure of uh, doing some other work with Francois, so... Uh, it's great to have you here. 
Um, he also has an MBA from Sherbrooke University in Quebec. He's a certified trainer with the Center for Nonviolent Communication and a registered corporate coach. He also authored a book, The Blame-Free State, published in 2014. And uh, for those of you whose French is a little bit rusty, uh, Francois's last name, Beausoleil, means beautiful sun, right? And we could all use a little bit of that today. Uh, whereas my name, on the other hand, means Stone Mountain in German, uh, which I kind of feel like I've been smacking my head up against throughout this pandemic, but hopefully that's, that's over. And uh, so speaking of trauma, uh, Beth and Francois, welcome to Carrying On The Go. Thanks, Carol. Thanks so much, Carl. And Francois, we're thrilled that you're with us here today. Yeah. So you. before we dig into the specific articles, uh, and I do encourage our listeners to take the time to read each and every one of them, uh, Dr. Gallick, can you please tell me kind of how and why you as editor-in-chief decided uh, that it was important to compile this issue of caring? So um, in usually in the uh, early fall, we meet together as a um, a caring team and talk about strategies for the upcoming year. And this was one of the topics that readers were interested in and also the editorial advisory board um, was also interested in it. And I, I want to give a big uh, thank you to our associate editor, Paige Hector, um, who was instrumental in recruiting uh, many of the authors um, of the articles for this issue. So without her um, expertise and connections, it wouldn't have been um, nearly as rich and, and um, helpful, I think, as, as, it, it, as it will be. Yeah, thank you. And it's, it's really some great content. Again, I hope everybody will uh, read it cover to cover. So uh, maybe we should start with an accepted definition of trauma. And I know there's several. Uh, I do like the SAMHSA definition that's referenced in the lead front page story, which says that trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So that really casts a wide net and certainly Every one of us, every one of our listeners uh, has experienced things in life that qualify as traumatic. Uh, so I think I'm going to just ask you, Beth, to uh, talk a little bit, riff a little bit about the two lead uh, front page articles on COVID-related trauma and caring for those who have suffered trauma uh, and may even have post-traumatic stress disorder as an aftermath of the pandemic. So uh, what do we know and what are we still learning? And, and these articles, by the way, are uh, by Joanne Caldy, our, our senior reporter, and Dr. Lisa Lind. Thanks, Carl. Um, so we all experience trauma, and it's suggested that in the general population, about 80% of people have trauma in their past. But we all have different risk factors and different ways of coping with things that happen around us. Um, and trauma can accumulate over time. And um, interestingly enough, um, this the regulation about trauma-informed care that's kind of uh, described more in Steve Levinson's article uh, came into uh, effect in November 2019, right before the pandemic. And uh, you know there was a shift, I think, in terms of CMS looking at trauma-informed care as infection control became so important. 
But now that we've lived through the pandemic, and I think both of the front page articles do a nice job of this, um, we've all really experienced a, um, a, a trauma that's affected all of us. And we all may respond a little differently. And a, a couple tips from the two articles is thinking about when we're assessing for trauma, rather than asking kind of what is your diagnosis or what is wrong with you, um, instead thinking about what's happened to you or have you ever had any traumatic or distressing um, uh, things happen to you? Because entering a long-term care facility or being there during the context of COVID and being shut off from family and friends and having changes in our team, all of those things can be um, uh, triggers for people who've experienced trauma in the past. The other thing I think that the articles do a nice job about is talking about um, helping staff deal with their own trauma. So many times um, throughout COVID, um, people had to really um, be able to step in and take care of people in very challenging circumstances when they didn't have appropriate PPE or staffing levels and individuals they were close to um, were getting sick and, and dying. And one of the articles, I think it's in, um, let me see, it's in Joanne Caldy's article, but um, talked about the difference between empathy and a compassionate response and how empathy, when you're kind of feeling what that other person feels can lead to you, you to re-experience trauma, whereas a compassionate response is, is more self-protective. Um, there's also information in there about the power of uh, stress-first aid where um, our caregivers and, and clinicians and all of the people working in post-acute long-term care can work to take care of one another. So, um, you know, some, some valuable tips. Thank you for that. And I do think, you know, with COVID, uh, it was just such a, really a bloodbath there for a while for, for a lot of our facilities. And, you know, uh, our staff and those of us who work with this population, of course, we're used to people dying, but we're not used to having a whole bunch of people dying at once and without having the support of their families at the bedside. And, and I think that uh, was exceptionally difficult for many of us. Um, you know, it's certainly part of life, uh, serious illness and death, but to experience it in that way and that sort of helplessness, I, I think uh, really did create uh, trauma for, for many of us. There, there's one thing to kind of end on a more positive note, and this is really in Dr. Lin's article, and I thought it was really helpful. It's talking about the power of resilience and the ability to have post-traumatic growth. Um, and so how can, um, you know, it's that old saying, what does not kill you makes you stronger. Um, so dealing with these challenges um, and coming out the other side of it may, may help us to, to, to grow and, and be stronger in our future. So it, it's, um, you know, about developing new coping strategies. I think that's a, that's a, a really useful construct, although, and I'm, I'm very much of an optimistic person, but I, I just, I am not sure that I'm really a better person in any way uh, <laughs> since this pandemic. I wish I could push a button and just make it so that it uh, had never happened, but um, I guess, you know, we made it through and uh, 
but I do think there are a lot of people who are still struggling. I, I'm sure they are still struggling. But if you think about it, Carl, um, you've probably developed skills you haven't even realized yet in terms of your coping and managing. And the next time a crisis comes to play, you'll be able to draw upon um, the things you learned and, and you know all of the experiences you've had. Thank you for saying so. I certainly spent a lot of time up in the mountains, uh, so that was that was a good thing, you know, when we were on lockdown. Carrying on the go will resume after this brief message from the foundation. I'm Susan Levy, the chair of the Foundation for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and we're pleased to have this opportunity to share a glimpse of our mission and accomplishments due to donations from many of you listening, our generous donors. The Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Foundation is the only philanthropic entity dedicated exclusively to support and enable professionals and clinicians working in this critical service area. We've had the distinct pleasure to support such worthy projects as the Futures Program, providing more than a million dollars since inception to support practitioners developing their knowledge in their pursuits of service. Other funding priorities have included research on physician quality development measurements, the AMDA app, the Drive to Deprescribe initiative, to optimize medication use in post-acute and long-term care, and AMDA's COVID-19 vaccination toolkit. Ongoing support will enable us to continue programs realizing our mission to support the quality of life for persons in the post-acute and long-term care spectrum, and to inspire future and current practitioners and demonstrate the value of a trained and engaged workforce. Visit our new website at paltcfoundation.org Help us if you can and will, and thank you for your continued commitment to our field. And now back to our podcast. So um, I think maybe next uh, I'm going to ask uh, Francois, you know, both you and your colleague Yvette Erasmus contributed great articles that I thought had some, some really good practical advice that our listeners can yeah, kind of implement in their own lives and in their professional practices. And so uh, can you please go through a few of maybe what you think might be the most effective strategies for us? Also, feel free to comment on anything that we've been talking about. All right, thanks, Carl. I mean, first, in, in terms of practical advice, I want to be clear that the level of challenge that uh, people are facing in the healthcare system in general, but certainly also in the nursing home spaces is really high. And then the things that I'm proposing to this article uh, sit in this awareness. Like I'm really thinking this is really hard. So um, I'm bringing this with a lot of humility. And this second thing I, I want to share is that um, given the level of stress that is, that is present for most people, a lot of these practical suggestions uh, will be difficult to access. And because of course people want to, want to bring a compassionate response or want to bring an empathic comment. And then a lot of the tension um, is making it really hard. So I think where I might wanna start in terms of practical uh, approaches has to do with working with our reactivity. And again, I want to say that's not an easy thing, but it's such a crucial thing to uh, really build that skill, build the skill, I would say, outside of very difficult situation. Like it's a, it's a muscle to build 
ongoingly where we train, a, I would say, a combination of many parts of ourselves, our, our minds, our hearts, like how we relate to our nervous system so we can get better at it when we arrive in the moment and face something that just is, catches us uh, by surprise and bring us to this place of, of trigger. So in terms of working with our reactivity, I mean, a short version of our approach, and it might be counterintuitive, is that many of us, we just want to get rid of the reactivity. Like we're thinking, this, this doesn't help, this is bad, I don't wanna be reactive, let's put it aside. And so we try to squish it, right? And then it's, it brings us in a place where we're kind of divided, like our nervous system wants to go in one direction, our mind is saying something else. And so the approach that we suggest is actually to partner uh, with our nervous system through leaving it some space to, to be and not judge our immediate reaction, which is likely to be either fight, flight, or freeze. So notice it, see it, um, allow it to be there for at least, you know, one second or two, understand that it's kind of trying to help. And then from that place, we go to a place of more choice in the situation. So in the article, there's some suggestions around a specific sequence that we found to be uh, helpful. Um, I'll pause here, Carl, leave you some room to jump in because of course I have a lot to say around this. Yeah, so I, I, I like the idea of sort of, uh, if not necessarily embracing your reactivity, at least acknowledging it and, and giving it a little bit of space uh, because we're human. And when we shut that kind of thing down, uh, I think it, it can have a lot of other deleterious effects. Am I getting that right? Absolutely, and your distinction is perfect. We're not talking about embracing or surrendering or just go with the reactivity. We're saying acknowledging it, uh, seeing how it lives in ourselves, not judging it as bad or wrong, but then absolutely go to a space of choice. Like what can we choose to do right now that's going to serve all the needs? So it's kind of a tr tricky place, but still, an important thing to reflect on. Almost like kind of a mindfulness uh, with respect to your reactivity, right? You're, you're observing it, you're, uh, you're alongside it. You're not necessarily, uh, you know, you don't have to love it or hate it. It's just, it is what it is. It, this is absolutely coming from mindfulness. So being aware of what's happening, naming it in yourself, becoming the witness of your experience, in a non-judgmental way. So those are all mindfulness uh, components and principles, absolutely. And that's probably something that as clinicians, we can uh, try to help instruct our, our patients to not be angry at themselves or feel weak if they're feeling these emotions, but uh, just uh, observe the emotions and uh, accept them and, uh, and then move on. Absolutely, there's so much opportunity. I think all of us, we've been trained in almost the worst way possible. Like we've been trained to kind of dismiss our so-called negative emotions so we don't get the benefits, we don't get the 
all the richness that can come with doing this type of work. And we're, we're also trained to sort of shut ourselves down. We're also trained to work with our emotions in the mind. Mm-hmm. The mind is not really good at dealing with emotions. So there's a right. huge opportunity to bring more of the body um, awareness and experience. And of course, patients are struggling physically. So there's many things that we can bring and still with a lot of empathy and compassion for the suffering that's going through. But I think we can, we can help. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and I don't know what you think, Beth, but I, I just know I've observed many times, not just during the pandemic, but throughout my career, that uh, those of us that are trained as clinicians are often, you know, it's discouraged for us to uh, kind of show the humanity, to show the emotion. We sort of hide behind that mask of professionalism. And I think that can do a lot of harm. I mean, you know, you don't want to be a blubbering, you know, mass of, of tears and, and hysteria uh, when you're taking care of people. But by the same token, I think uh, genuine uh, expressions of human emotion are just, I mean, it's part of what we are. I, I don't think it's just my opinion. It doesn't help to, to try to squelch those. Yeah, I, I think having a place to express those emotions so that it may not um, always, we've kind of been trained, it's important to process those emotions, but not doing it in public. <laughs> mm. um, and sometimes doing it in public may, may be appropriate. I, you know, I, I think um, I can remember as a brand new nurse, um, I, I worked most, um, most of the holidays because I was new. And whenever uh, the carolers would come into the unit and uh, sing, it would kind of set, it would get me emotional. And so when they could hear them in a distance, my, my colleagues would uh, send me into the back room and send somebody in to sit with me to talk about other things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can picture it. Yeah, yeah, yeah but. Yeah. Um, so Francois, what else? Uh, what else would be good for our uh, our listeners and our readers to to learn from your piece and from just the general kind of nonviolent communication philosophy that's been helpful to to many of us? First, I want to add to the conversation you just had about the showing our our emotions. Uh, recently, I was watching the the movie about Patch Adams, uh, and it seems like it's not a not a great, uh, um, it's not really linked to the reality. It's not a great representation of reality, but still one thing that I, that I heard, which I, I'm pretty sure is, is not something that you would hear in a classroom, but it really shook me when I heard the, the, the character playing the head doctor saying to the students, he said, we're going to take humanity out of you and make you some something better we're gonna make doctors out of you and i was like taking the humanity out that was like oh my god like right i don't want that doctor taking care of me (laughs) (laughs) definitely and 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 i would agree both of you of course on my end i firmly believe in the power of of human uh connection the humanity in, in the relationships i think people especially when they are really vulnerable the, 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 I think there's a soothing and re- reassuring effect to sense the kind of the authenticity to some degree, of course, of what's going on for the other person. But of course, it's a, it's a line to be, to be uh, careful about. So mm. 
other things I, I want to share. Actually, I want to comment something you you said before. Um, um, I think Beth was, Beth was saying from another author, and um, I certainly don't want to say uh, that I know more than this author, this person. I'm I'm pretty sure they know much more about the topic. Um, still, I want to bring my, I guess my approach around empathy. Because when I heard you say, when, when you feel what the other person feel, that can lead you to be re-traumatized. And to, to me, this is actually not a definition of empathy. This is, this is a definition of sympathy. And of course, there's a lot of people saying different things. And again, with a lot of humility, just, just sharing my point to me. Sympathy is actually the, the root of the word means resonating with. So something happens and you resonate with in the same, same way as a guitar string resonates with another string. So that's sympathy. When you feel what the other person is feeling. Empathy, I'm pretty sure the root of the word means being with. So when we practice empathy from a perspective of from the nonviolent communication perspective, our role is to be fully there with the person, be with their experience. And uh, through some training and getting used to it, we actually are not getting in a place where we feel what they feel. We are this kind of a container for them to express what, what's going on. So just one distinction I want to, to share, because does that, uh, does that feel clear how, my, how I'm approaching it, Carl? Yes, yes, thank you for that. I, I think it was Dr. Lynn's article. Well, let me see. I think it was. No, it was actually Joanne Caldy's article, and she spoke to a Dr. Ganzel, and it it talked about um, compassionate responses um, that helps caregivers to um, be effective in dealing with emotions without depleting them their, themselves when they're um, kind of. Are, are overwhelmed. Yeah, right. I, no, I'll let you go. Okay. I, I think basically uh, the the notion uh, and you know what the semantics of it are maybe are less important than what it actually is. Is that if you really feel exactly what the other person is feeling, maybe that's too much. Mm -hmm. Maybe um, you know to be able to acknowledge their suffering without having to feel it yourself will allow you to to be more resilient and not to, to um, uh, in a sense, harm yourself. Yeah, I, th I think that was the, the take home point is that you need to be able to be compassion, compassionate and have a healing presence, but not um, at the detriment of, of yourself um, when you're having to do this again and again and again. And I think in the pandemic, um, you know, it, it was um, hard for people to fill up their own cups, yeah, so to speak, sure, <laughs> their sure. emotional cups. Yeah. And, and uh, Francois, the other thing uh, that I really like about the whole nonviolent communication uh, kind of strategy and philosophy is, uh, you know, beyond uh, trauma, it's like when you are in a disagreement with somebody, just a regular disagreement, when you can find common ground, when you can try to, uh, you know, walk a mile in their shoes or whatever you want to say, um, that 
that gives you a lot better chance at solving problems, right? And uh, so do you have any any suggestions for our listeners on that? Yes, um, I think what is really uh, helpful to, to hold as a, as a principle is this, that understanding doesn't mean agreeing. Hmm. I think a lot of people get caught in that so if if you're clear that you can understand without agreeing then it opens the door to what most people would agree is maybe the most helpful approach and i'm talking about listening right so when you're in a disagreement with someone and if you're able to have some some ways of not being caught in reactivity Really, the, the, the first step is to listen, 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 and listen, <laughs> ask, ask open-ended questions to understand more. And then w once you do that, you have a much deeper understanding of what's really happening for the person, what's, what's important for them. And you, it's going to help you to be more clear, but also it's going to help you to have more connection to the humanity of the other person. And when it's going to be time for you to speak, you, you build on all that you heard. You also build on an, a more a bigger trust that's been created with mm -hmm. you listening. You're going to build on the listening phase also as an asset to decrease reactivity for, for everyone. So it's, it's really simple. I'm not saying it's, it's, easy to do but the road is is very clear when there's tensions find a way to take care of yourself enough so you can listen and listen and listen and and thank you for that i'm sure beth and i would agree a hundred percent that as clinicians sometimes that is the most important thing that we can do and it's so hard for us because we're so busy you know thinking of what advice we're going to give or what medication we're going to order that we can't just keep our mouths shut and listen to what our patients and their families are trying to tell us. So thank you for uh, for reinforcing that message. And uh, another principle that I think is really helpful as a tagline is connection before solution. Hmm. Connection before solution, connection before education. So we're, we're tempted to give advice most of the time uh, no, let's say not most of the time, let's put it this way. Often an advice will not be received um, as well as if it's preceded by some connection, some, some human connection, sense that the person is understood for what's going on, that they're not judged for what's going on. Mm. And hopefully we can actually ask them, are you open to get my advice? But if we, we prioritize connection and that's, that's basically nonviolent communication, um, you know, a summary of nonviolent communication. Connecting first is something that changes a lot outcomes, changes a lot relationships. Yeah, thank you. And as clinicians, that's certainly when there's a connection, uh, people are much more likely to take your advice. And you know, I always tell my patients, uh, you know, they're really the boss. They get to decide whether they do what I think they should do or not. But let's make the decision together. And that commonality can really help. So, so thank you for that. So um, let's uh, move on. Uh, Beth, I really enjoyed your article. Uh, and, uh, you know, it had some also some pretty practical advice in it as far as helping 
uh, people with trauma. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, in terms of the SAMHSA de definition that we already went over, um, it, we also need to think about the three E's of trauma, the event, the experience, and then the effect that it has. And in the Caring Collaborative, I, I actually gave an example of um, a patient that I had interacted with recently. Um, and the, while conducting a, a, a psychosocial assessment on, a, on the new resident described, um, I found out that she was a, the survivor of intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. And um, then that um, was kind of the event, the daughter and the patient were able to describe what had happened to her. Um, and the relationship had ended, but afterwards she had uh, experienced increase in her anxiety and avoidant behavior. So when she would hear people raising their voices or arguing, um, she would kind of shy away from that. So that's an example of um, her experience. And then the effects are kind of the impact um, in, in this um, setting she was in in assisted living, uh, another ge a gentleman was admitted who um, had um, pretty significant cognitive impairment and sometimes he would get frustrated and in the evening would yell and become quite loud. And although his outbursts were not directed towards her um, or the other residents, um, it she became more anxious and fearful and started spending more time alone in her room um, and which is the effects. So I, you know, I think having those um, examples that we see in our practice, the, the good thing is um, you know, through some careful work by the staff, um, through promoting choice and, and thank you Francois for listening to her, um, they were able to determine that she, the staff would try to move her to someplace else, but she was having difficulty being able to do this by herself. And so one of the interventions that they did, um, because she said she wanted to be able to leave when she wanted to and not have to wait for staff to come help her. Um, we got her involved in physical therapy. And I think there was some fine tuning with her um, Parkinson's disease medication so that she had more control and autonomy. And um, in addition to, um, you know, working with the gentleman to, to try to help him uh, so things wouldn't be quite so boisterous, um, but giving back that um, autonomy and choice and control to her, I think um, made, a, made a significant difference. And she's able to move around with her rolling walker quite well now. Well, that's, that's a good story. And I think obviously part of it is identifying what the actual triggers are, but that event experience effects is a good uh, framework for us to, uh, to look at that under. Um, so before we wrap up, I, I did wanna mention, Dr. Levinson wrote a nice piece uh, back in 2016 when they uh, revised uh, the, the extensive, you know, 670 pages, which, I know Steve read all of, and I read all of it, and several others of us. Um, there was quite a focus on trauma-informed care, but as you mentioned, that sort of, you know, it was due for implementation in 2019, and it has kind of fallen to the wayside. I suspect before long we will be seeing some 
specific guidance to surveyors on this. And so um, we should make sure in our facilities that, uh, that we are really uh, trying to focus in on identifying trauma histories and uh, you know, care planning it appropriately. And I don't mean to say that just because they're gonna be looking at it. So don't get me wrong, but uh, it's something we should have been doing all along, but if we haven't been, it's, it's time to, to get rolling on that. Uh, and a bunch of other good articles. Uh, I think it's very timely uh, because of the, the trauma related to the pandemic. But again, so many people have traumas of various types and uh, uh, you know, how we do in the future is really based on how we, how we cope with that uh, and how others help us cope with it. Um, so maybe I'll ask each of you to uh, give some, some closing thoughts uh, to wrap us up. And I'll start with you, Paige. Uh, Paige, oh my gosh. And I'll start with you, Dr. Gallick. That's fine. I, I, I would love to know as much about this as, as Paige and Francois do. <laughs> so I, it's, a, it's quite a compliment to me. Um, I, I think that one of the main messages is we shouldn't only just assess for trauma, which unfortunately, I, the way the regulation reads mm. um, is kind of very focused on assessment. And, and I know there are some people out there that were worried that by assessing this, we'd be re-traumatizing the person. Mm. And, and that's not the goal at all. The goal is instead to um, understand the triggers so that we can prevent re-traumatization in the future. Um, so, I, uh, you know, I, I hope that we, we get to move not just from assessment, but also into understanding and um, avoiding triggers and, and working with our, our patients um, so that they have um, the best quality of life as possible. Thank you. And, and I'm really glad you mentioned that, actually, because uh, there are people who do not want to discuss their trauma and they have every right to, to do. I mean, that's that's person centered care. If they say it's too painful and I don't want to uh, even discuss it, then we need to respect that. And to the extent we can still avoid putting them in situations that might uh, might trigger it. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, Francois, what can you tell us? I mean, I think for me, what's present is just this uh, high level of compassion for, for, for all of you, for the work that is likely to, to leave you in places of, of distress, of uh, uh, helplessness, kind of confusion, and also being uh, like exhausted. And, and uh, I have so much um, tenderness in me for uh, uh, all of these uh, experiences as so, so, so many of you are just bringing the very best you can in, in dire circumstances to, to be there, to provide care, provide compassion, provide empathy, pro provide support. And I'm just imagining how, how heartbreaking it, it might be to, you know, to struggle to accomplish that, to be bring the kind of care and love that you want to bring so those are my uh, final words and a lot of appreciation for all these uh, these efforts and dedication to care thank you francois and i want to put in a good word for uh the work that uh, francois and yvette and others are doing and uh they have some dedicated content for healthcare uh, professionals uh, through the Empathic Leadership Institute, and I'll encourage our readers to uh, 
uh, hunt that down and, and uh, avail yourselves of it uh, if you're so inclined. And, and also, thanks for the kind words about those of us who do choose to work in post-acute and long-term care. Uh, you know, uh, they just came out uh, tonight, uh, President Biden's going to give his State of the Union address, and part of it is going to be talking about how awful nursing homes are and how they, you know, uh, they're taking money away and not giving care and, and uh, they need more punishment. And um, it's disheartening. Uh, oh and mm. I just think for those of us who, who work in this field, we do it for the right reasons. Um, I, uh, I'm sure we all agree that things could be better. I don't know that the higher penalties for poor performing buildings is going to somehow magically improve the care that people get in those buildings. And uh, so I'm just, uh, I, but I hope we can be part of the solution and uh, um, we need to keep that, that attitude of, of caring and really wanting to be of service uh, to make that happen. Um, so thank you so much. I think the, <laughs> I hate to wrap up on that slightly, uh, slightly resentful note, I'm, but I'm, <laughs> um, I am looking to make lemonade here and I, I hope we can work with the administration and with CMS to, uh, uh, to make things better um, in ways that, that aren't all about uh, increasing enforcement uh, and that might be more about increasing our workforce and so on. So I hope to see many of you at our annual meeting in a week. I'm not even sure this will have aired by then. So I, if not, I hope to have seen you all recently. <laughs> and uh, so this is gonna wrap it up for the March, 2022 podcast, Carrying On The Go. Uh, thanks again very much to our guests. Dr. Beth Gallick and Francois Beausoleil. Merci beaucoup. And we'll <laughs> talk next time. All right. Bienvenue. Thank you. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org that's apex.paltc.org click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode